right. Good morning. Take your Bibles and let's look at Luke chapter 4 together. We're in the fourth chapter of Luke and you know that Luke is recording for us these wonderful miraculous displays of the authority and power of Christ to give his people confidence that he indeed can take care of our spiritual need if he indeed has power from on high attending the message that he is the Messiah. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he uh, introduced them to a concept that they were unfamiliar with. It was a concept about which they had no experiential grasp. Genesis 2.17 refers to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, if you eat of it, in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the concept of death was introduced And yet they had no experiential understanding of it. They didn't know anything about death, either spiritual or physical. Their heart was pure. Their their bodies were uncorrupted. All they knew was the freedom of divine life and the intimate fellowship that came with it, along with physical strength and physical vitality that was unmarred by degradation It was unmarred by atrophy or any kind of genetic or organic mutation. Uh, There were no maladies. There was no disease. There was no illness. They were unaffected by broken physiology. And when they sinned, they didn't even immediately fall down and breathe their last because God had a plan to redeem. But they did begin to immediately experience the effects of death, the physiological effects of being depleted of the vitality and free life and liberated physicality that they had before that. And those atrophies, those maladies, those sensations of the physical life that were beginning to demonstrate depletion and its move toward death because of corruption, they knew instantly that it would certainly lead to their ultimate death and, of course, has been the case for every human being ever brought into existence since the fall because we are born with a human nature that is dead, is corrupted. That has been the undeniable life experience of all of us. Physical disease and death is unavoidable. You can't escape it. You won't get away from it. It is the single most glaring testimony to our corrupt condition. Everyone in this room, though we're from different backgrounds, though we're from different heritages and different physical strengths and limitations, etc., we are all one in the experience of physical afflictions. Ultimately, that lead to the, the thing we can't avoid. Death. And men, men and women deny that they're spiritually corrupted. You can preach the gospel to people and they will deny all day long that they have a bent towards sin. But what they cannot deny is that sickness and disease and illness and birth defects and every level of pain and weakness, these are the ongoing experiences of every human being. And then at the end of it, there is always death. While in prison, just before he was beheaded, John the Baptist sent a little delegation to Jesus to affirm that he was indeed the Messiah. And uh, I'm sure John the Baptist didn't want to have his head lopped off before he had completed his mission and sent disciples to this person. And at the end of his life, there he was in prison and his beheading was imminent. And 
He sent a delegation to Jesus saying, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for or should I send my disciples to someone else? In fact, in Luke 7, the answer is recorded. You'll notice in Luke 7, verse 20, when the men came, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. That's a deliberate statement by Luke to emphasize the answer Jesus gives. Verse 22, he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That was Jesus' answer. Look, I take care of the issues that everyone is concerned about. And if I have the power to take care of the physical signs of corruption, you can bet I am the Messiah who has the power to take care of the spiritual corruption inside of men. That, that was his answer. It's what the prophets said would happen when Messiah came. He would demonstrate divine power and authority, the likes of which had never been seen, and that his promise to deal with sin and the curse was believable. Why? Because he could actually demonstrate power over the afflictions that were obvious to humanity. So blatant, so undeniable. The things people worried most about. He had the power to overcome them. It's one thing to claim you're the Messiah and that one day you're going to wipe every tear away and get rid of all pain and forgive sin and take care of spiritual healing and you're ultimately going to reverse the curse and restore everyone. But how are we going to know that the claim is true? How are we going to know it's guaranteed? How are we going to know that you can complete the task and bring hope to our hearts that is certain, that is the anchor we were singing about. I mean, you think about it. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, sin and death have been so prolific, so profound, so consuming across the globe. It has reigned by that time for a very, very long time. It is spread to all men. No life was left unaffected. And every human being ever born experienced it. Not only the bent in the human heart towards sin, but also physical weakness and atrophy and illness and disease of various kinds. And no one escaped its outcome and its ultimate end, death. That is why, beloved, when Jesus demonstrates miraculous power on the earth, it was so that his divine claims could be backed up. They were true. This would have been some kind of massive encouragement to the disciples. Listen, he had a little band of disciples. He was about to officially call all of them and bring them together and send them out into the world and make disciples, by the way, in this sin-cursed world where it's running around the globe, demonic forces are out there, blinding entire cultures, sin and disease is happening, people are dying, and they're in unbelief, their heart is bent away, their flesh hates God. I want you to go out there and preach the gospel to them. I'm going to save them. You mean us? Really? You're kidding, right? I mean, so what did Jesus do? He came doing exactly what Messiah's arrival would demonstrate. 
this would be a massive encouragement to the disciples. If they're going to have the courage and not lose heart at not only their own afflictions, but the sin afflictions of those that they're witnessing to, there's going to have to be graphic evidence that Jesus has this authority and this power over evil and over everything in the universe that goes with it. And that's precisely what happens. And so Luke takes us from account to account. And you just have three verses here. I referred to verse 41 two weeks ago because it mentions casting out of demons. And we were in the text earlier of the synagogue uh, event where he cast out demon. But 38, 39, and 40 give this little tender account. Follow along as I read it. And he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked him to help her. Standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, verse 41 says, shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them, he wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. They were doing what the demon in the synagogue did, trying to expose him early, trying to stir up an early riot, get the Jewish leaders against him for blasphemous claims of saying he was the Son of God. And they knew who he was, but they were using it to try to get outside the purposes of God and change the whole dynamic. Jesus said, be quiet. And they obeyed. Now, Jesus did all kinds of miracles, and word had spread. He said that. By the way, just to, for distinction purposes, miracles by definition are, are, we use the word freely, and I know why we use it, because we, something amazes us and we say, that's a miracle, etc., etc. But we have to make a clear distinction here. Miracles technically, by definition, are displays of power which suspend the natural laws familiar to all of us in the way God created his world. And it's an important distinction from what, normally happens in the course of life, which, by the way, is called providence in theological study. Here's the distinction. Providence is God's powerful reign over his creation in such a way that his ultimate purposes are accomplished through the normal outworkings of the course of the the laws of nature, through the course of people's lives living in the moral universe in which God created and the normal course of their lives as agents Uh, of moral decision, moral agents. So we work out our life, and ultimately, in the miraculous providence of God, he's able to accomplish his purposes, even though it's through the normal course of the laws of nature and the way he created the universe. Miracles are totally different. Miracles are God's power over his creation through the interruption and suspension of the natural created order. That's why we call them supernatural events. And though miracles are powerful demonstrations of the supernatural, let's be very clear that they cannot, in and of themselves, overcome sin that is in the human heart and keeps people from God. To see a miracle does not change a heart, as the New Testament makes obvious, as Jesus' ministry proved repeatedly. In fact, in John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus was discussing this with the Pharisees, and he said, look... If I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. 
In other words, if there's no divine power attending what I'm preaching, then just reject me outright. But, he said, if I do them, in other words, if you have no way of refuting or denying that the powerful displays that I am doing are from God, they are divine They are beyond the normal course of the outworkings of life. They are suspensions of the natural order. They are supernatural. If I do those works, though you don't believe me, you don't like me, then believe the works so that through them you might come to know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, look, you're always seeking for signs, but... The sign itself has no power to change your dead heart and bring it to life. Throngs of people saw Jesus' miracles, but they didn't believe. Right before their very eyes, they saw these things happen. Many of them rejected anyway. And Jesus' enemies, by the way, never denied the miracles, could not refute them. They lied about them. Even the resurrection, they perpetuated a lie. Why? Because they couldn't refute the miracle. Even when Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, like John 9, the blind man, they, they didn't refute that. They couldn't. Tried to get his parents to, you know, to get involved in some sort of cover-up, etc. Even the man in John 9, the blind man, said, Look, these works are from God. They have to be from God because you men know that historically, in the lives of God's people, it has never been told or written down that a person who was born blind has been healed instantly by some sort of gift or power through an agent like that, a prophet or whomever. It hasn't happened. You know that since the beginning of our people. It's never been recorded. So if I was born blind, which I was, and I was healed, then you got to figure out where this stuff's coming from. But it doesn't seem too hard to make the connection. And so Jesus in John 10 was saying to the Pharisees, look, a miracle itself isn't going to change your heart, but if you will just look at the miracles and see the power displayed there and then connect it to the one who had the power, then connect it to his message, maybe your heart will soften even if you don't like me. And then your heart may be open to me. Man, so many saw his miracles and they were just rebels. A rebel who's witnessed a supernatural phenomenon is nothing more than a more culpable rebel. Right? Until the ultimate miracle of regeneration reaches and touches the heart, we just continue to seek for signs. Why? So we can put God on trial. Well, I just, you know. Until I see it and I'm convinced as a human being with a fallen heart... I don't believe you. But see, believing is seeing in Scripture, not the other way around. Jesus told people that if they will at least let the miracles lead them to search out his claims, perhaps their hearts would be softened. Well, as you know, Luke is going to just string a bunch of things together in these next few chapters. Jesus has authority over all knowledge. We saw that. Jesus has authority over evil. We saw that. Here, Jesus has authority over disease, which then ultimately means he has authority over death, the very thing that disease leads to. In chapter 5, he has authority over the rebellion of the human heart, and he can turn men around, and, and the apostles will catch men like fish and hook them and anchor them and bring them in. Later in chapter 5, he will have the authority 
over sin's consequences by saying, I can forgive, and then demonstrating his power to do so. He even has authority over morality itself later in chapter 5 and on into chapter 6. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. I make the law, he says. It represents me. And then he has authority over the fruit of the gospel. To all whom you have given me, Father, I give eternal life, John 17, 2. Every soul, I have authority over every soul, and you've given me some of them, and I will give them eternal life. That's the power and authority over the fruit of the gospel. So he is ultimate. The Messiah has authority. And that would have been such an encouragement to the apostles. They needed to know that when they spoke a message of truth, it was irrefutable clarity. Just like when Jesus spoke and they said, man, he, he has, he's like one with authority. And the message was such imposing content. It was inarguable. It was a message that was truth. No one could assail it. No one could corner him, pierce him with conviction, unmask his excuses. The word of God that Jesus spoke did all that to people's hearts. And yet he himself, you couldn't corner. And that's the way it is for us when we preach that knowledge to a pagan heart. If we preach the word of God itself, the word of Christ, it unmasks everybody's excuses. It dismantles straw men. Look, in 30 plus years of the Christian life preaching the truth to people, I know that the same thing that happened to me happens to other people. The blinders come off. You don't have to. I mean, it's very, very quick to understand that you didn't do anything. You don't have to think that long and hard to know that you didn't do anything. We heard it in the waters of baptism last Sunday, didn't we? How rich was that? Blinders coming off all over the place. There's no human ingenuity. Jesus has authority over all knowledge. He's the source of it. And last time, two weeks ago, we saw that he has authority over evil. The forces of evil, all of them. When he speaks, a demon has to acknowledge. When he's around, when he was on the earth, demons were just troubling people and afflicting them in greater ways because the very presence of Christ forced them to expose themselves. You remember back in verse 33, they cried out with a loud voice. They had to manifest because Jesus was there. And what did he do? He said, come out of him. He rebuked the evil and then he restrained it. You be quiet. I don't want you speaking about who I am because you have wrong intentions. The father's timing is perfect and you're not going to ruin that. So be quiet. And they had to be quiet. Demonic forces. Wow. What a display. And then he removed him. He didn't harm the guy anymore. And so here he goes from the synagogue to this tender scene at Peter's house and demonstrates that he has authority over disease. And the first thing we notice is the trouble at the Sabbath meal. It's a, it's a troubled Sabbath meal. It's not going like it normally goes. And just so you know, in case you're reading the other accounts, Matthew puts this healing right after the Sermon on the Mount, whereas Mark and Luke place it after the exorcism in the synagogue. And just so you know, that's not a discrepancy. The order of when Jesus came into this area and on that day, the order would go like this. He was in the Sermon on the Mount in the morning of that Sabbath. And then the leper was healed, Matthew 8, on the way into uh, that area for the Sabbath. The centurion servant was healed upon entering Capernaum, according to Matthew 8. Then Jesus preached in the synagogue. Then the demoniac was healed and then off to the house there where Peter lived. 
But it's a troubled Sabbath meal. Notice verse 38. He arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they made request of him on her behalf. So there's a very unexpected infection that has come upon this woman. By the way, 1 Corinthians 9.5 indicates Peter was married. I know if you grew up Catholic, that really hurts. <laughs> but you just need to know. Peter was married, and according to Clement of Alexandria, writing in the first century after the apostles had gone home to be with the Lord, he mentions Peter having children, perhaps, if, if accurate, even a, an ill daughter. A paralytic daughter is mentioned by Clement. He also mentions that uh, tradition said that when, Mary, or when Peter's wife went to her death, he was the one, Peter was, who encouraged her. And um, if Peter's mother-in-law lives at the home, then her husband has passed away and she's now staying with her son-in-law. And on any regular Sabbath, this is what they would do. They would go into the morning hours to the service and right about the sixth hour, they would have a meal, which is about noon uh, on into the afternoon. And so right after services, the, the people in the home, the host and hostesses, they would begin to prepare this meal. But on this particular Sabbath... She hadn't been able to attend the services because she was overcome by illness, nor was she able to prepare the meal and get ready to serve the family. And this was no normal Sabbath because this Sabbath meal was especially marked out. Peter was coming and he was bringing with him some disciples. James and John were there, according to the synoptics. And ultimately then, Jesus was invited, who was a well-known, miracle-working prophet-slash-rabbi, I mean, this is a serious visit. Jesus is coming to dine with them. But Simon's mother-in-law was not able to prepare. In fact, Luke, being the physician here, includes terminology not included anywhere else. Uh, she has a fever. Um, she is suffering from this fever. This is a word he uses three times as much as any other New Testament writer and um, it, it literally means tormented, just like you would imagine. I mean, if you're at home and, and you catch some viral or bacterial deal that takes you down, you know how it takes you down. A week and a half ago, that's where I was. Your joints are racked with pain. It's in you. You're dehydrated. You're, you don't want to move. You have chills. Your head is throbbing. And if somebody came and said, hey, guests are coming, you're going to say, so... Kill me now. That's where she's at. One translation says oppressed. She was oppressed. That's this word, afflicted with, held and tormented by. It's a, in, in, the, in, in potentially a, a three-word uh, comment here, Luke might have strung together some of the layman's medical terms for this. And he uses high fever. No one else says that. That's just a doctor. He's saying this is a massive oppression. Her fever is very great. A doctor knows the difference between a small head cold and a fever that has racked somebody's body. And he wants us to know. She couldn't prepare the meal. She couldn't attend services. Family and guests are coming a very, very important rabbi, and she can't move. Her joints are full of pain. She's chilled. She is down for the count. And so 
they're unashamed in their inquiry. Notice, and they made request of him concerning her. Well, that's no surprise. That's what I would do. Absolutely. You just heard what happened in the synagogue, and he came into the Galilean region with his reputation of a year and a half of ministry doing all kinds of these, kind of these things. You mean he's in our area? That's exactly what I would do. Hey, can you forget the meal for a second? Can you please ask him? I mean, she is suffering. And for a host, a hostess, to be down when this important visit is coming, and that just happened in the synagogue, and word is already reached, this, this, this is not a small affair. She would have been devastated as well as sick. Jesus is already the healer coming into their home. And by the way, his healing ministry had been marked by the same characteristics over and over again. And it was part of the reputation that preceded him. His healings were always the same. And this would have been uh, far different than perhaps today's uh, staged show uh, among the so-called faith healers of today. Everybody knew that when Jesus rolled into town, if there were some healings, it was always with a word or a touch... It wasn't some staged show. It was in the normal course of people's everyday lives. Jesus came in and either spoke it or touched them or from a distance, some other place, just spoke it and it happened. Spoke it on sight, touched them on sight or spoke it some other place and it happened. His reputation wasn't a staged show. It was in the normal course of life. Luke 7, there's a funeral. He comes up. He raises the boy from Nain right out of the casket during the funeral and everybody's weeping. What a shock. Nothing had to be pre-prepared. Nothing. And everybody knew it. And furthermore, in every case, so far, verifiably, the sickness and the disease was always organic and not what we sometimes call functional illnesses or even symptomatic diagnoses. These were maimed bodies. These were birth defects. These were serious diseases. These were debilitating kinds of empirically diagnosed Organic problems. Things that doctors could not deal with without serious medicine, if at all. So they weren't just symptom-based things no one could verify, and they weren't the typical functional illnesses that even doctors with placebos and, and different environments and different diet can change without any medicine. Furthermore, the healing was always immediate and complete. That alone would have been striking to Luke, right? Luke's a doctor. You're kidding me. Immediate and complete every time? Yes. And it was undeniable and it was verifiable and there was no relapse. I mean, how different is that from the, from the snake oil sideshow circuses that go on today? And even in ancient Israel, they went on. In fact, this same term for high fever was written about in the Talmud. And uh, they had remedies. And they got even bizarre when they read the Old Testament. And they, they would apply mystical remedies to some of these high fevers because they didn't know how to deal with them. One particular Talmudic remedy is so bizarre. It says that you're supposed to tie a knife holy of iron by a braid of hair to a thorn bush. And then read the... Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 to 5 passage about the burning bush, after which this particular thorn bush is to be cut down and then a magical formula pronounced. That was a Talmudic remedy for a high fever. 
It got bizarre back then, let alone the kind of circus we see today. No. If Jesus was within the region of our town, let alone coming for the afternoon to teach on the Sabbath, let alone come to your house for lunch, you'd be saying, hey, heal my mother-in-law, touch me, touch her food, touch everything. <laughs> you know? Just walk around the house, please. Get, our, get everybody here. <laughs> touch my mule. If you can do something with a mule, you can do anything. It was an unashamed inquiry. It was sweet. It was what you and I would have done. It was a troubled Sabbath meal. But the good thing was there was a tender Savior who was ready to minister. Notice the tender Savior's ministry. Verse 39, and standing over her, (laughs) he rebuked the fever and it left her. Notice the simplicity of a physician's account. Notice the deliberateness of Luke's account. He also includes terms that are very precious to him, standing over her. There's bedside manner thrown in here, the comment as he had heard it and heard the account and then recorded it. And he also deliberately uses his terminology so that we get the point of connecting this to his authority over the evil in the synagogue. He rebuked the fever. Same word, and he's going to just drag that word throughout these accounts. Why? Because even though a fever is not personified, but a demon is, the point is, when Jesus rebukes something, it runs. So, if he rebukes a rebellious heart and quickens it, it is spiritual change with eternal impact. And if you're a disciple and you look back on even a little account like this, In the course of a day, he goes into this house, this woman is racked with fever, and he rebukes the fever like he rebuked the demon. You're going to be thinking, man, I don't ever have to worry that he can change a human heart. In the spiritual sense, the diseases of the heart are no different than the physical results of the curse. Both are the result of the curse. Both are the effects of our fallen condition. And even connecting the dot between a demon needing to be cast out and a fever being cast out, both of those are effects of our fallen condition and both require the power of God to bring complete healing. He censured the fever. Luke likes this word. He warned it. It is the word sometimes used for to punish. He put it under a censure and it fled Notice, and it left her. The immediacy of Jesus' power to heal. And for a physician, this must have just blew his mind. He'd spent his entire career, beloved, trying to diagnose a problem by the process of elimination, trying to find the right cure, and then when giving the cure, had to manage it and then watch over it and then watch a person and maybe add environments and healthy nutrition and all kinds of other things that he could do, even with no guarantee that this person would be healed and it would be over time, strength might return if indeed the cure works. And if it's a disease that can't be cured, maybe he's just managing the quality of life for a few more years. Sound familiar? That's what doctors do. They try, and they are wonderful, and they are educated, but they can't do this. 
Luke was just stunned at the immediacy of it because he tried through his own ability and maybe someone's ability that would have the will to fight something and then over time endure rehabilitation to finally see someone come to some semblance of restoration and it wouldn't even be complete. It certainly wasn't immediate. Jesus rebukes an infection that riddles the body and it immediately flees and it is replaced by a completely restored, normal, healthy, physical constitution. For a doctor, that is just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. And I love this. He has power over the fever and then it's overtly verified. And this is why Luke includes this and this is why the whole event happened. Notice, and she immediately got up and she waited on him. (laughs) Look, make no mistake. Jesus didn't heal her so that somebody could feed them a meal. Not at all. But you know what? He healed her so she could get about the business of doing what she came to do. What she loved to do. What she was called to do in that occasion. Why? Because normalcy was restored. That was the whole point. Complete normalcy. Think about it. In one moment, she's racked with spiking fever and, and joint pain and dehydration and chills and a throbbing headache and totally immobile and unable to move, let alone do anything for the meal. And the very next moment, she's up, she's moving quickly, and there's no fever, no pain, no chills, no concern. And I'm sure maybe everyone around would have said, well, you know, I know you've been healed and you're really excited, but you should take a rest here. Because what if you get drained? I mean, you don't want to overdo it. That's what we have to do. Man, I felt, the first day I felt better last week, I was up and around. But, you know, you get cautioned. You can't deplete your newfound energy that well because your body's still fighting. Her body was fighting nothing, this woman. No rehabilitation. No time to get her strength back. No feeling drained. Apparently no feelings of anxiety about whether she should be up and around. This is ultimately why Jesus healed her. So that in serving the meal, there was irrefutable proof once again throughout the whole evening that Jesus has the authority over disease. The city was was riddled with diseases. And apparently from verse 41, demon-possessed trouble. People horribly afflicted who had opened up their life by wickedness and perversion to demonic activity at such a level that when Jesus came to the earth, it became exposed that they had left themselves under that kind of bondage. And with Jesus around, the demons wanted to hold on. And as they held on to those lives, they trashed those lives all the more. And so there it was in plain sight. Disease. The assumption may very well be that some of these diseases were directly related to demonic will and purpose. Not just the death of the body, but demons inflicting diseases on people. Surely that's happened. And Jesus and his authority and his power is so overtly verified as this woman gets up and she just goes back to normal. (laughs) It just must have been shocking to see that. Doctors had never been able to do that. That's so unlike the healers of today. The L.A. Times 
printed a, an article about a Benny Hinn conference in Anaheim. And one person who went, a reporter named William Lobdell, he covered that Hinn crusade one of those nights. And this is what he wrote in his article. The real drama happened after the pastor left the stage and the music stopped. Terminally ill people remained, just as sick as before. There were folks with Parkinson's disease whose limbs were still twisted and shaking. There were quadriplegics who couldn't move any muscle below their neck. These people, and there were hundreds, maybe thousands of them at each crusade, sat in the chairs, bewildered and crushed that God hadn't healed them. And then the article says, based on what he observed, Lobdell astutely said this, the simple logic of Hinn's operations, raise false hope and extract money. That's right. They don't heal with a word or a touch. Organic diseases, immediately, instantaneously, no rehabilitation, absolute, complete restoration. Sometimes when you read these accounts, you think, I wish the Lord would come and heal my disease like that. Listen, remember this. I heard somebody say that about Lazarus once. Man, wouldn't that have been great? You die and then you come back. No. That's not great because he didn't have his glorified body yet. So you've got to go through this thing twice. He had to die physically twice. You want to do that? I don't want to do that. So I wish the Lord would come and heal my temporal disease. Listen, that's the whole point. If he could heal temporal diseases like he did, and you're in Christ, then your spiritual disease has been healed. So the point isn't that you get temporally healed. Does God heal today? Not through the gift of healing, but certainly he can heal and does, even miraculously. He sometimes suspends what... Disease is in a body, and there in the medical room, it just shocks everyone. I remember one particular case. Precious police officer, female police officer that went to our church. The ministry I was in years ago. Got in an altercation and was shot point blank. And for all intents and purposes, her life was over. Her sternum shattered into all of her vital organs. And, um, you know, we prayed. There's no guarantee that God's going to heal. He has his purpose. But at the hospital, we prayed, and uh, amazingly, her vitals started to return. There was no explanation for it. The doctors were shocked and stunned. We got to share Christ with a whole bunch of people, and a year later, she was back on the force. There was no medical, earthly, physical, temporal explanation for such things, except that God chose in that time to heal. So I wish he'd do that with my disease. Well, he might, but he may not. That's not the point. The point is, if you're spiritually healed... And you walk by faith and not by sight. These momentary afflictions are light. And compared with eternity, they are indeed less of a vapor than your very life. You say, but they're pretty hard. The Lord says he strengthens you in them. He promises to strengthen you in them. Your outer man's decaying, of course. Did you know that when he healed, when Jesus healed on this day, there's no guarantee that people believed. Look at the irony of the moment. Look at verse 40. And while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. And demons, verse 41, were coming out of many shouting, you're the son of God, and he wouldn't allow them to speak. He rebuked them because they knew him to be the Christ. Look at that, verse 40. All those who had any who were sick with various diseases. They brought their family members. 
When the sun set, Sabbath was over. You can see them at their house after the synagogue event and after word of the mother-in-law. You can see them. Is that meal over? Is the Sabbath? They got their family members. They're heading to Peter's house. That's where they're going. All who had their sick, all who were dying, I'm sure they ran outside of the outskirts of the town. Get your people in here. This guy is healing everyone. Every single one was in the line. No one sat in chairs afterwards being told it wasn't, you didn't believe. Jesus, in a rare, very amazing, unique, indiscriminate, wholesale occasion, just starts to heal. In some occasions, he didn't heal everybody. But here, it says everyone who was brought, he made them all whole instantaneously. Man, if you were a part of that as an eyewitness, you can't ever forget that moment. Some didn't believe. Get the irony of that. Here's Jesus in his physical life, capable of dying, healing every one of their physical diseases, knowing that he's going to bear their spiritual disease in his body on the cross. And he's just doing it, whether they believe or not. Why is he doing that? It's not a miracle that's going to change a heart. He's doing that so that the disciples will see it. And when he says, all authority has been given to me, they'll know, wow, all authority has been given to you. You tell a fever to go and it just goes instantly. Ken Hughes said this was an unrestrained display of raw kingdom power. That's the way to say it. Just amazing power over all disease. And so they brought it. Whether it was raging fevers, cancer, the crippled, the palsied. They just started bringing family members, everyone. And there Jesus was laying his hands on them. And they were all being healed. I'll close with 2 Corinthians, the passage we read. So rich. I'll start a little earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, and then we'll just read this and let it sink in. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure, that is the gospel. You can see it there in verse 6. God had shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He just called it into existence. God who said, let there be light in Genesis is the same one that took your dark heart and said, let there be light in your heart. And he says, we have that treasure in this earthen body so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but we aren't crushed. We're perplexed, but pressured, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're never forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And, by the way, we're chased around by everyone, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. How is that, Paul? Because no matter if our physical life is dying and fading away and decaying, our inner life becomes stronger, more courageous, more gospel-fruitful. Verse 11, we're... We who are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death works in me, life in you. In other words, I get to share the gospel as the power of God sustains me through my afflictions. 
You should want the power of Christ to change the diseased heart inside of you. How do we know he had that power? Because he displayed power over physical disease and evil, supernatural evil. So then, verse 16, we don't lose heart. Outer man is decaying, inner man is being renewed day by day. Drop down to chapter 5. Verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Oh, that's so true. Man, we're home here in this earthly body. That means we're absent from the Lord in terms of seeing him yet. But we have the Spirit as a pledge, verse 5. So, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Don't expect that physical afflictions to this day, if they don't leave you, if you have diseases and are afflicted, don't expect that that is the sum total and definition of your spiritual existence. It isn't. We walk by faith. We know our spiritual life has been healed if we've repented and believed in Christ and He has the power to change our inner life. So we are of good courage, verse 8, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. Of course we do. I prefer to be with Christ and rid of this thing. Therefore, verse 9, there it is. We also have as our ambition. This is your one direction in life. This is your ambition. This is your drive. This is the drive train of your existence right here. Whether I'm at home with the Lord and absent from the body or absent from the Lord and at home here in the body, I have as my ambition one thing, to be pleasing to Him. Because when I meet Him and appear before His judgment seat, I want to have honored Him with my deeds. I want to fear Him now and persuade men. That was the whole point. Not too long from this incident, Jesus is going to say to the disciples, you now go on my behalf. And they're going to be saying, no, we don't have to worry. He has power. Remarkable, stunning, miraculous authority and power over the entire universe of things that are corrupted that so have destroyed us and our families and our lives for generations. Sin. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3, I long to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to enter into the sufferings Christ endured, and so I do that in this life, and in doing so, I enter into the expression of the power of His resurrection as my inner life becomes stronger, my faith becomes more robust, my witness becomes more definitive, the truth in my mind becomes clearer, my discernment more rich, my message more bold, and my courage unshakable. That was the whole point. What a tender scene. Jesus healed them all. He didn't do that in every town. Some, he, uh, he said, you know what? There's so much unbelief here. As a punishment, I'm not going to heal anybody. Wow. I'm going to keep revelation from them. And if you're here today and you see on the pages of Scripture that account, know this. You have now heard about the miracle on the pages of the miracle we have in our hands, the scriptures. You don't need some miraculous display today. You have a miracle right here. The Spirit of God Himself wrote this by inspiring it 
every single word. This is a miracle. So when you read of those accounts, you know they happened because they were written down by the Spirit of God. There's your miracle. If you don't believe that, it doesn't matter what you see. You won't believe. And if you're in Christ, when you preach the gospel, you don't worry about the authority. Just speak the word. God changes hearts, and he does. This room is proof of it, isn't it? This room is proof that he does kindly heal our spiritual diseases. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for your authority and power displayed in these remarkable events. We don't need displays of miraculous power today. If you want to heal, you you heal. You do it by the prayers and petitions of your people, but you do it by your own power and according to your own purposes. But you told us we would be afflicted. You told us there would be afflictions in this life, physical diseases, infirmities. But even on that day with your disciples, the display of physical healing wasn't the, the point. The point was that this proved you had power to heal a heart. And Lord, you've healed our hearts for those that know and love you. Thank you. Thank you for rebuking the spiking, sinful bent of our hearts, opening our eyes and granting us faith and repentance so that we might be restored in the inner man and no longer hate you by nature, but now have a new inclination, a new nature inside of us, one that loves you no matter how often we fail. That love is shed abroad in our hearts. So we may, may we gain courage, as you've told us, and make it our ambition to please you, to speak the truth, to not fear, to be driven to honor you by the proclamation of your truth. And Lord, use it to bring souls to yourself, to heal the spiritual disease of the heart in friends and loved ones and in this community through what you're doing here in our midst. We pray it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.